here in Platte Park. My name is Christine, and I'll be teaching with you this morning. Would you pray with me as we get started? Holy Spirit, we thank you that we are gathered as one body, no matter where we physically are in this world. Spirit, we bring to you anxieties, our questions, our doubts, as well as our joys and our celebrations. God, we expect you to come in this place and help us to experience your presence here in these words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. Do you ever look back on your life, look backwards, and remember why you became a Christian? Seriously, think about it for a minute. It's kind of a big question, kind of a heavy question to start a sermon. But why did you join this life of the church? Why did you come? What drew you here? Perhaps it was the story of the forgiveness of sins. You were really drawn into this piece of the story. Or maybe it was a get-out-of-hell card or eternal security. It's okay to be honest that that's why you came. Or maybe your youth group was just so fun and quirky and kind of weird that you couldn't help but belong to them. But I think as I've matured in my faith and I look backwards, I see that if I think about my faith as just one element like that, like just eternal security, it actually really narrows my Christian journey. It really narrows my faith because it becomes what I want Christianity to be. It becomes what I want the world to see. It becomes how I want the world to be healed instead of what God wants for the world. Now, I love baptisms. You remember those. We had those before quarantine. They're joyful, and they're wonderful, and they're family-filled, and everyone's on the cusp of tears in their congregation. It's a very joyful time. Now, when you're watching a baptism or you're baptized yourself, is it just about forgiveness of sins? I'm serious. Think about it. Is it just about that one thing? And I think the answer has to be no, it's not. Baptism is about so many things. It's about God adopting us as God's children into God's kingdom. It's about starting a new life with Christ into the kingdom of God. When we reduce the Christian life to just one element, we're not living in the kingdom of God. Rather, we're living in the kingdom of me. It's about what I want. It's about what you want, how I can fix it. The Lord's Prayer, how Christ taught us to pray, says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and on earth as it is in heaven. This refers, of course, to the kingdom of God. But as Richard Rohr says, we can't say thy kingdom come unless we're willing to say my kingdom go. Jesus talks about this kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're synonymous in his parables. In Matthew alone, which is where we'll be today, we'll be in Matthew 13. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times. His parables or his stories that are laden with metaphor and literary device, they have intention. And yet they seem a bit mysterious sometimes. As I read through them, sometimes I say, Jesus, just, just make it clear. Just make it real simple, real cut and dry. We can just get to the heart of things here. But that, that is often not the question that Jesus answers. He communicates about the nature of the kingdom and his invitation to join it. So I want to dive into Matthew 13 today and get a better view of what this kingdom looks like and why it is so strong and why it is so, so unshakable. Now we'll be in the message version today. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard some of these parables before. And I think the message kind of gives us, uh, it inspires our imagination to see things in a new way, much like Jesus' parables do. 
So we're in Matthew 13. Prior to this particular moment in the text, as a refresher, you know, Rome dominated the lands. They've had ruthless leaders. They induced fear and imprisonment and execution. Hunger and disease are in the midst of society. Jesus has been speaking to crowds, the people encountering all of these real threats, and they're there with him to hear him deliver a message of hope, of promise, of deliverance. He's been healing at this point. He's taught about Sabbath and fasting, and word is spreading quickly. He's quickly turning tables on the religious establishment. So here he's trying to communicate a message about the kingdom of heaven. This particular chapter is called the parabolic discourse, if you want some fancy terms, or the kingdom parables, as he goes into the nature of the kingdom of God. So starting in verse 1, Jesus goes down to the lake of Galilee, the lake or the ocean, as the message describes it, and the crowd follows him. Now immediately he gets into a boat, and he sits down, and he starts teaching. Tradition tells us that he was probably in a cove or an inlet, and so Israeli scientists have figured out, oh, there's only so many places that could be in the Sea of Galilee. And so if he went to one of those coves or inlet, his voice projected over 100 yards, over 300 feet. And so it was natural acoustics. He was trying to communicate his message with broad, modern amplification. He's also sitting, which is the customary posture of teaching at that time. We think of someone who's standing as teaching when he's sitting. And so his actions convey to me that he's intentionally communicating to the people with his body language and with his body that it is time to teach and it is time to listen. First, he tells the parable of the farmer scattering seeds. Maybe you've heard this one before. It's the one where a farmer sows seeds and certain types of plants grow from those seeds, depending on the soil and the growing conditions and the heart of the seed or the person. And he ends the parable with the phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, at this point in the story, the disciples sort of pull him aside, and we aren't really sure if they're like, hey, get off the boat, we have a question for you. Or if they're on the boat, the text doesn't really tell us. But in verse 10, the disciples come up to him, and they say, hey, why do you, why do you tell stories? This is really not the question that I'm sure I would be asking if you just told a parable. So often I'm confident that I don't have the same questions the disciples would. But however it happened, this is a private conversation. The crowd doesn't hear this part. And note that they're not asking him to explain the parable, but Jesus doesn't explain the parable immediately anyways. Anyways, so this simple message that I'm asking for, Jesus just cut it, just give it to me straight, is not how Jesus answers. Instead, he goes on this bit about understanding, about knowledge. He expands on whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He even goes into prophecy and what the NIV calls the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Israel, it was a well-known prophetic hope that God would establish God's kingdom through a messianic figure, an earthly Davidic king. The secrets, or Greek mysteria, of the kingdom of heaven refer to an end times eschatological secret event from Daniel 2. But the secret isn't that the kingdom of God is here or that it's tomorrow, but the mystery is that it came in an unexpected form through an unexpected person of Jesus and his works, a seemingly unearthly king in his kingdom that is both today and in the future. Later on in verse 34 through 35, the message version again says, all Jesus did that day was tell stories, a long 
storytelling afternoon. Doesn't that sound nice? A long storytelling afternoon. I could use one of those about these times. And I think he tells stories. He's not direct like I want him to be and maybe like you want him to be because stories open up something new inside of us. It gives them and it gives us the option to say yes to something that is not expected. This unroyal king gives us stories about a vast, expansive kingdom with a vast, expansive, and broader view of love that they couldn't see without stories. Jesus wanted people to see and hear. I think this means they wanted that he wanted people to fully experience him, this fully embodied God and man, not just see him sitting down on the coast or not just hear him from far away, but both. He's a fully enfleshed God. And this broad kingdom is so broad that it's almost unimaginable. Now, this scene where the disciples ask about why do you tell stories and Jesus' response suggests that if someone's curious about Jesus, then they'll be given understanding. They'll be given ears to hear. What we see if the crowd is that they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They can touch, but can't feel. They have mouths, but can't taste. They have the mechanisms in place, but they are not willing. The crowd isn't asking questions often. So I hope you see this as a blessing of your own questions, your own doubts and faith, your own wonderings, and that questions are encouraged in the church. That is the place where questions can be answered and can be wondered, and sometimes they don't have an answer. They are mysteries. Jesus also speaks in parables because he wants to kind of sift out the people who are there for entertainment, which to me says he's filtering out the trolls. That's what he's doing. He's filtering out those who are going to really rile him up make fun of him, the jesters. He's interested in those who are truly curious and willing. And for those who are, Jesus reveals more. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus will go on to tell parables about very normal people. Farmers, business people, fishermen, bakers, not the regality of a royal court. These are told through the parables of the wheat and weeds, the mustard seed and yeast, hidden treasure, pearl, and net. This is all chock full in this chapter 13 in Matthew. People would have naturally been interested in these stories because it was their profession. You might say these stories are kind of common in a way, very accessible, a long storytelling afternoon. But this reveals more about the nature of the kingdom. It's at least common. It's at least accessible. In fact, it's more than common and more than accessible. It's common and extraordinary. It's accessible and incredible. In theological terms, we call this both and. It's a very technical term, both and. We also call it already but not yet. There are glimmers of the extraordinary. There are sparks of wonder and of the supernatural within the ordinary, both and. The kingdom is present here now and will become fully present later when Christ returns, already but not yet. These parables show us that the kingdom is growing. It started small, like a mustard seed and like yeast, but it has grown, it is growing, and will continue to grow now and in the future. You cannot stop the kingdom of God. Aslan is on the move. Now, have you ever talked to someone, you've asked how they're doing, and they'll say something like, I'm just trying to be really present right now. And I say in that tone because I just caught myself saying this a few weeks ago. I caught myself in the sense of wondering what I actually meant by that. What does it mean to be present? 
And I think it actually means you're not trying to live in the future or in the past. You're not trying to, tra- the, you're not trying to time travel. You're trying to stay in the kingdom of God. You're not thinking about when a vaccine comes or when I don't have to wear a mask or when I can bear hug tackle every person, whether they're a stranger or a close family member. Saying present means trying to live in the kingdom of God here and now. Because if you aren't living in the kingdom of God, whose kingdom are you in? In the parable of the buried treasure and pearl, in verse 44 and 45, we see the kingdom is valuable. And we'll spend a bit of time on this parable. God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field for years and then accidentally found by a trespasser. The finder is ecstatic. What a find! And proceeds to sell everything he owns to raise money and buy that field. As I was reading this, I thought, why is this man in the field? What's he doing there? He was just hanging out in a field? But it's also a metaphor, so it's not literal. But in a world without banks, when an invading army is approaching, you're not sure what's going to happen to you, you would bury the things that were valuable to you. And if you did not survive, someone else would come to own this field. And so it was possible that there was buried treasure on your land without you even knowing it, without you even being aware to it. The point is that he wasn't looking for it, and he found the item of greatest value. He was there. He showed up, and he was curious. Verse 45 through 46. Or God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for or excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. In contrast to this hidden treasure man, this pearl merchant is looking for the item of greatest value. But both of them establish their whole lives around this greatest treasure. They find this treasure and they completely change directions. Their whole life pivots around this moment. Now, if you paid $5 for a lottery ticket and you got $20 million back, you're not counting that one, two, three, four, five as a loss. You're saying that's a bargain. That's a steal. Of course, that's incredibly valuable. And that's what the kingdom is about. You may find it when you're not looking for it, or it may find you. At the end in verse 51, Jesus asks if they understand what he's been saying. And they say they do. This shows that they've grown in their understanding. That if you're willing to learn, God will give you ears to hear and more to understand. And more and more will be continued to be unveiled. Their willingness matters. To this, Jesus says in verse 52, he said, Then you see how every student, well-trained in God's kingdom, is like the owner of a general store who can put his hands on anything you need, old or new, exactly when you need it. We each have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Every student, like the owner of a general store, has a role, now and when Christ returns. The kingdom of God is at the heart of social concern. It's the fulfillment of the Sermon on the Mount where the last are first, and the suffering are blessed, the oppressed are liberated, and we all have a role in that kingdom. As N.T. Wright wrote, what you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, these will all last into God's future. 
These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly. He's British, so he says words like beastly. A little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it, thy kingdom come, the kingdom comes. They are part of what we, what we may call building for God's kingdom. So church, do you see how large this gospel is? It is not just one thing. It can't be just a get out of hell card. It, it just can't. Now we need to talk about hell for a second, mostly because I just brought it up. Um, but if you're familiar with this chapter, you've read these passages before, you may, you may notice I omitted some casual parts about weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the thing about preaching is you can't omit parts like this. Passage and context is important. You cannot avoid what you do not understand, and we are invited to understand if we are willing, even when it feels difficult. In verse 30, there's a parable about weeds growing with wheat. But when the wheat is harvested, the weeds are tied in bundles and burned where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in verse 50, there is a parable of the fishing net. Angels are involved. They separate fish deemed unworthy and throw them into the fiery furnace where there's more of this weeping and gnashing of teeth. Traditionally, this is what Christians would call hell. But hear me well and clearly. Your role in the kingdom of God does not decide what happens to anyone. In the time of post-history, when the sun and stars have died, Christ will have some sort of judge role, or revealing evil for what it is, a cosmic sorting. But that is not our role. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how that works. It's something I've really wrestled with in seminary. I don't have an answer to it. And I've decided that I don't require the answer to this particular theology. You can still be willing to follow and willing to understand without requiring understanding, without mandating that Jesus tell you the answer. Jesus is speaking to us in parables, and so we will not understand everything on this side of eternity. Now, if you'd like a different reading of this, the message puts it like this. This weeping and gnashing of teeth is translated as, there will be a lot of desperate complaining but it won't do any good. That feels a lot different, doesn't it? Now, when you confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're not just saved from something. More importantly, you are saved to someone. And if your focus is what you are saved from, then you are, are not focusing on the kingdom of God. Because you might just be saved, the thing that you might just be saved from is the kingdom of me. The parable of the fishing net in verse 47 tells us that all are invited and all are welcome because Jesus cast the largest net. Our role doesn't decide or dictate what happens or who's in or out. We invite everyone to the table. Our role is to not close the door to certain people and open it to others. The kingdom of God is a large banquet. It's a feast. I say that there aren't any folding chairs in the kingdom of God. You cannot exclude someone by taking away their chair. It's a long bench where everyone sits and everyone belongs. Last year, I was walking on the seminary campus with a friend of mine, Ryan. Now, Ryan and I are different people, and we sort of complement each other in our friendship. He's very tall. I'm remarkably average. Um, he's very friendly. He'll walk up to anybody. I'm a little more reserved. I kind of scope out the situation, make sure it's safe. 
But we found, uh, we not found, we encountered a mother with a three-week-old baby. And Ryan walks right up to this woman, and she, he's, he's talking to her, and he's interested in her story, and I'm kind of like, you know, scoping it out. And as the conversation develops, and there's a natural pause in the conversation, he gets right in that little baby's face, and he grabs the tiny infant's pinky, and he says, little boy, you are so loved. You are loved. You are forever loved. And this moment made a big impression on me. I felt like I was encountering something supernatural in that moment, not necessarily through Ryan, not that God is male, but it felt very special. And I asked Ryan if I could use this story in the sermon, and he said, of course, that was an important moment. And he also said, the message of you are loved is a message we need to hear all the time. It's the message that we've lost somewhere along the way. To whom we are saved is the entire purpose of the journey in the Christian faith. So our, our role, my friends, is to love others like that, radically and recklessly and grab them in the face and tell them they're loved with our whole hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Invite all to the table of the kingdom. This is the robust message of the unshakable kingdom of God. It's not going anywhere. It's only growing. It's now. It's in the future. It's for everyone. It's for the lonely, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, but it's also for the liar and the thief, the business person, the teacher, the nurse, the bully, and the parent. However you have felt excluded or alone or not enough, this invitation, this love, is the balm of every hurt you have ever had and will ever have. This is the biggest invitation to you as a Christian, the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear that you are loved. Amen.